Welcome back into the Lions 24-7 podcast. We are into game week number five. All of a sudden, the final week of September 2023. Penn State's undefeated. They're now up to number six in the AP Top 25 poll after spending the first few weeks of this season at number seven. That comes off of a 31-0 victory over previously number 24 and now on-ranked Iowa. We spent a lot of time out of Beaver Stadium on Saturday night, early, early Sunday morning, breaking down things on our post-game podcast. And we'll bring back Daniel Gallen Allen along with Mark Brennan for our Monday episode of the Lions 24-7 podcast. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? Awesome. Doing great. Well, Daniel, you and I had a chance to sit down, uh, put out uh, about 45-minute episode on a Sunday morning. Hopefully people had a chance to check that out. Uh, hopefully we didn't sound too tired. I, I think we powered through that episode pretty well. And there was obviously a lot of stuff to keep us energized about when it came to discussing the Nittany Lions, when they deliver a performance like that, Mark, um, I think we all had them covering a two touchdown spread against Iowa, which says something about the way we view Penn State going into a top 25 Big Ten matchup. But to do it with this kind of authority, Mark, and I've only covered this team since 2017, but in a moment where there was a lot of, I guess, national attention on them and, and a bit of that litmus test applied by folks in different corners of the country, they went through it and they passed with flying colors. Yeah, I think we all suspected that that 2021 game was going to be a motivator, uh, even though none of the Penn State people would really admit that before the game. After the game, we learned that, that indeed it was, you know, from none other than Chop Robinson, who wasn't even on the team in 2021, but was, you know, so made, motivated by the film that James Franklin showed of the of the Iowa special teams coach flopping that he uh, – that he decided to do his his own uh, flop celebration. Uh, but, you know, I think there's something to be said for that. And if you go back and look at my prediction, the one thing I said is I think sometimes we put too much stock in that kind of thing. But I don't think that was the case this time because that was a game where Penn State was physically beaten up. So you could talk all you want about the booze and whatever else, but Penn State was challenged. And, you know, what, what did we learn this weekend? You hear what Ryan Day had to say after that Notre Dame game. This is stuff that these coaches take very, very seriously. If you have a reputation for not being a tough team, that can come back and bite you because, number one, your team could start buying into it, and number two, other teams are going to test you. And I think this was really important to go out and just kick the crap out of a team that's generally known for being a physical team. And that's exactly what Penn State did. It sent a message. And I, I, you know, one thing I was thinking about, and I know I'm rambling on here a little bit, but we'll get to it a little bit later. You know, uh, the, the next road trip uh, for Penn State uh, after this week. Um, it, how cool would it have been if Penn State was playing Ohio State this week instead of waiting until October? Because you would have an Ohio State team coming off a very physical game and a Penn State team that's very well rested. And I think the real key for Penn State now is maintaining this momentum through these next couple of weeks where the spotlight's not going to be on, where you're kicking one game off at 11 a.m., probably in front of about 3,000 fans. <laughs> they got to keep this going. So sent a message loud and clear to the nation. You hear what national pundits are saying, and, and uh, but but uh, you, you can't let that go now. You can't. Number one, don't let it go to your head. And number one, keep the momentum going. I think what's what's really cool about this, and I don't think it's necessarily surprising to any of us who follow the team uh, very closely as we do, but through these four games, where Penn State is now number six in the country, 
there is starting to be more clout carried in regard to the Nittany Lions defense and what Manny Diaz is doing as the coordinator. And I think people understand that, yes, Drew Aller is a really exciting prospect, and he had four touchdowns Saturday night. Didn't feel like a four-touchdown kind of night for Drew in the stat sheet, but he threw four touchdowns and he protected the football. But the, 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 the I guess the horse that was leading the cart to a 31 nothing win was being pulled by Manny Diaz's horses. And this is a group now – Daniel, that they got they got plenty of Clydesdales. I mean, we're coming to realize that. We've looked at the defensive end room for a while. You wrote a story here on a Monday expanding on something that was a topic of our conversation in postgame podcast where you had Chop Robinson, Adiza Isaac, and Deny Dennis Sutton sharing the field. All of the conversation has been, okay, you got to rotate three for two spots. doesn't really matter who the two starters are. At this point, it's been the veterans, Isaac and Robinson, with Deny Dennis Sutton coming off the sideline to begin games. But now you've got shop sliding inside and you've got the two others outside and you've got them attacking with plenty of speed. And it showed up in a big way, especially shop Robinson against Iowa in this matchup. Tell us a little bit more about the story you wrote on Monday and why you think it's maybe the new wrinkle that we all need to be monitoring with Manny Diaz's group. Yeah, that was the the first time this year we'd, we'd seen that package uh, denied in a sudden and Chop Robinson told us that Manny Diaz put it in this week. Um, and I think that it you know, speaks to Manny Diaz's creativity uh, when it comes to you know, adding in these, these different players and, and putting guys in different positions. But it was really interesting to talk to Chop Robinson about rushing from the inside. Um, you know, he had that play where on Adisa Isaac's sack where he's basically trying to climb over uh, the Iowa offensive lineman to you know, get to Cade McNamara as well. Um, and then later he had a, another play, I think, where he he pushed all the way. He just got right through um, with, with no resistance. And he said that things happen really quick on the inside. And he believes that you know his quickness gives him an advantage there. Um, you know, I went through on Sunday and, and you know, Iowa made it easy by running only 33 plays to to go back through and, uh, you know, watch watch the film. I guess. And I, I tried to chart some of those plays, but, you know, Penn state went into that formation uh, with the first teamers uh, eight times. Uh, there were two times that a play wasn't run. Uh, the first time was because Kalen King wasn't on the field. Um, so Penn state only had 10 men and called a timeout. Um, and then the second time Iowa called a timeout with the play clock running down because Penn state had eight guys standing on the line of scrimmage, um, <laughs> you know, look, looking into the backfield. Um, but the other the other times uh, it was, you know, Cade McNamara was one for four. Uh, he completed that first pass to Eric All, and then he had three incompletions. Uh, he got sacked once by Isaac, and then uh, the last time that he faced it, there was a bad snap. So, yeah, I, I think that it just speaks to Manny Diaz's creativity. You know, the individual skill that those three pass rushers have. You know, the ability to get into the backfield. I think Deny Dennis Sutton said there was one play where all three of them beat their man. Um, and if you can do that while also rushing Curtis Jacobs, Abdul Carter, Johnny Dixon, and Daquan Hardy off the edge, KJ Winston was lined up, uh, you know, right on the line of scrimmage a couple times too. I mean, you can just do a lot of different things, confuse, you know, be pretty confusing and, and really make life difficult. So it was really interesting. I thought to see that wrinkle, you know, we were wondering when we were going to see some things pulled out because it did feel like that on both sides of the ball, things were pretty vanilla through the first three weeks. Um, so I think this gives us a, a look into you know, the mind of Manny Diaz a little bit. Uh, Manny's obviously got a, a lot of a lot of weapons to work with at all three phases of this defense. That became more apparent at Illinois when you got three veterans back 
um, and, and defensive end and defensive tackle and cornerback, and they're all available for you again. And this has been a healthy group. And Curtis Jacobs, meanwhile, has been a mainstay through the last three uh, you know, series of Penn State's defenses. Brent Prize last year, Manny Diaz his initial year, and now year two under Diaz. And he's played different roles. He's worn different hats. We saw it in week one this season. He was playing a couple of different linebacker positions. And he showed up big time. I mean, this is now a few times in, in, a, in a relatively small pocket of football for Penn State where Curtis Jacobs has flashed in a significant way, I thought, Mark. Going back to the Rose Bowl, he had a huge performance against Utah and, and confirming he was going to come back as a senior. And now under the bright lights of the whiteout, uh, became the first Nittany Lion to come up with two fumble recoveries in this in a one game since 1991, which I thought it was a really remarkable stat, a little surprising. One was quite fortuitous on special teams, but he took advantage of it. The other was on defense. But I just thought collectively, and a guy who didn't have to play more than 20-ish snaps again because of how this defense fared against Iowa, he's shown up this year. And I think he maybe is becoming a, a bit of an underrated aspect because we're talking about some of the preseason accolades and the postseason accolades from last year. He wasn't really on a lot of those lists. Yeah, that guy in 1991, by the way, was Mark D'Onofrio, who's one of the baddest you-know-whats. Uh, he, he gained a reputation for spitting in the face of a uh, Boston College quarterback when he had him on the ground, and I think he got a personal foul for it. So I don't think Curtis, the big dog, is the kind of guy who's going to do that. But, uh, you know, I made him my player of the game, and it was very tough because you, you look at the defense, and there were so few snaps that obviously an, a, a very good argument could be made for Chop and how disruptive he was. Not everything Chop did, as Daniel was mentioning, showed up on the stat sheet. I mean, a lot of it was just, you know, the, the one time, as Daniel said, when he kind of goes, tries to jump over the lineman and then, you know, Adisa comes in from the side. I had no idea who hit the guy, the quarterback. But what stood out to me on, on the two fumble recoveries the first one, if you go back and look, and, and I had this on still can, uh, photos from up in the press box, he, on, on the first one, on, on the on the offensive play, he was nowhere near that play when that ball was fumbled. You know, he came rushing from, from way far away and just dove in there and was able to get it. And, and what message does that send? You always hustle to the ball. I will guarantee you that on Sunday or today, that is being shown to every defensive player. That's the kind of thing that can win you a football game. You know, we talk a lot about how some of these special teams errors can lose you a game. That is the sort of thing where if you're never giving up and you're always hustling, even if it seems like you're out of the play, that could win you a game. Obviously, it didn't win this game. But, uh, you know, it, it was it happened at a key point. And then the same thing on special teams. You know, you have one of your your your, your top players out there uh, on special teams, getting it done and, and being in the right place at the right time. That doesn't happen by dumb luck. I mean, th that's that's people being where they need to be in hustling. And so that's why I picked him as my player of the game, just because I thought that was kind of personified, you know, everything that that defense was all about. And, you know, you talk about a guy who's a team leader, uh, just handles himself extremely well with the media, I think he's been really huge. I also wanted to make one point about Manny Diaz, if I can. You know, those three years at Miami as head coach, that had to be like training at altitude for him. Because when you're a defensive coordinator and you have to take on all the other crap that head coaches have to do, and I give James Franklin so much credit because he he embraces that. I mean, he's a micromanager. And he handles all that stuff, and he's smart enough to surround himself with coordinators that he could really lean on. 
And I think what you're seeing now is Manny Diaz unfettered by everything else that he has to deal with, that he had to deal with as a head coach and how, how creative he can become. You know, this is a game where we probably didn't have to see that stuff. So I'm, I'm sitting here wondering what the hell else is this guy going to do as the season goes along? And I'm also wondering more and more, like, I think everybody's looking at, at Manny Diaz saying, you know, He's not going to be here long. When's his next head coaching? You know, I, I wonder. It's going to be interesting when, when we have a chance to talk to him. Kind of how much, and he's he's talked about this a little bit, but how much is he enjoying just being able to focus on that side of the ball, and and being able to to have a defense that's doing the things that de- that this defense is doing. Yeah, and he said before he's, he's kind of fell in love again with being able to to be with the position room, to be with a, a, an overall defensive unit for the vast majority of your time in, in team facilities. And that's what you're focusing in on. But I, I, I think he's, I, I just have a feeling someone's going to be able to offer him something that just he, he can't turn down. If things keep going the way they're going for him here with this Penn state defense and man, I, Daniel, we think we know a lot about this defense because it has so many guys that have proven it and been big 10 action and guys who continue to step up. Um, there, there's a few little, you know, f- there's freshmen sprinkled in. You've got a few second year risers in the mix, but it's a pretty already established group with a good baseline. Doesn't it feel though in the next few weeks, considering how light they're going to be able to remain on snaps if things go according to plan with Northwestern and UMass and a bye week on deck, that they'll go into this Ohio State game and there's a chance we could see in a, a completely new look <laughs> surface because of what they won't have to show in a series of blowouts. And because knock on wood here, and you can hear it, they're healthy right now. If they can get through the next few, a few games and remain relatively healthy, the, the, it's going to be a light snap count. I, I mean, you've got you got like forty combined snaps on your starters between this game and the last home game. It's it's remarkable. Yeah, I was looking at the numbers that you sent over earlier, and I think that they had six defensive players go over twenty snaps, uh, which for like a, a Big Ten game, like a conference game, is is pretty absurd. Um, 25 matchup yeah like is like the the ability that they were able to the ability of them to get off the field with that one stretch where it was seven possessions six were three and outs and the seventh was a a one play drive with a fumble I mean I I think to be able to do that and then the Penn State offense just keeping Iowa off the field um, you know I took a peek at some of the the Iowa snap counts uh, yesterday and there's a lot of numbers over 90 uh, for some of those defenders, which is that's a, a lot of football, uh, especially at, you know early in the year um, in that type of matchup in those conditions. I mean, those are some high stress uh, snaps. So, yeah, I think this defense is in a, a really good spot. You know, like you said, you need to get through these next couple of weeks healthy. You can't stumble uh, at all in, in any way, really. But I, I think that they've set themselves up very, very well. You know, we talked about it in the uh, in the post game podcast where this Illinois and Iowa back to back, you wanted to see what Penn State looked like on the other side of it to really be able to project their trajectory for the year. And I think that they've come out of it very, very well. And like you said, I mean, Manny Diaz is going to have a couple weeks uh, to you know look at Ohio State. I'm sure that they were really looking into things over the summer. Uh, you know, figuring out what they can do. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see what that what that looks like in you know three weeks or so. Yeah. So just to kind of re- readdress this real quick, 10 different defensive linemen played at least eight snaps. No no one played more than 22. Only Chop Robinson even got the 20 snaps on the defensive line. 
You had four linebackers go somewhere between 13 to 28 snaps. And Dom DeLuca continues to be one of those four who's active. It's it's the, it's the you know, I think, the second or third consecutive game where he's actually been out there four more game snaps than your starting Mike Linebacker and Kobe King. And we actually saw some four linebacker looks. that They're finding ways to get Dom DeLuca on the field in ways that we didn't see. And he continues to reward that with his play and production thus far uh, at cornerback you had four guys land somewhere between 15 and 25 snaps and the same deal at safety four guys between 13 and 21 snaps and after what we saw against Delaware where most of your defensive starters were somewhere around a dozen snaps and against Illinois where most of your defensive starters were watching the game in the fourth quarter this is I just can't picture a scenario where Penn State has reached or is destined to reach the midway point of its season through six games with that light of a snap count total and that light of wear and tear on your primary components of what you're going to count on and to be able to get into the second half of play, because we're talking about by then, you know, Ohio State, mid-October, and it's not far from mid-October to Thanksgiving. You pack in a lot of action and you figure out where you are at the end of that. They're just going to be really primed to, I think, capitalize on what they accomplish in the first half of the season. Now, somehow they're going to end up getting taxed by with 80 snaps in a dogfight at Northwestern because we had this conversation and jinxed them. But I think that the, the the plan is there and the path is there, Mark, uh, for this defense to be just ready for launch uh, come the second half of football in a way that I don't think a lot of teams, especially those that are competing for you know conference championships like Penn State, they don't they're not going to have that well and that depth of of bodies and fresh legs that Penn State should be able to pry into. Yeah, guys, look at the 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 uh, season stats, the tackle stats. I have them up here. Penn State's leading tackler after four games is Curtis Jacobs with 15. I, our, our Iowa guy had 18 tackles. Last week, <laughs> yeah, he had a long night. <laughs> he had a guy who had 13. You're four <laughs> games in. Jacobs has 15. Zaki Wheatley, 12. Jalen Reed, 12. Kobe King, 10. Abdul Carter, 10. Those are the only people with double-figure tackles after four games. This That's is a bad. This is a bad, uh, bad year for people who want to chase stats and saying who the best <laughs> defense is. Because if you're looking for big sack numbers, if you're looking uh, for big tackle numbers and those gaudy things, don't look at the Nittany Lions defense, but look at the yards allowed and look at the points allowed. And I think that tells the story just fine. Well, you know, it's funny because I actually it, it occurred to me, and I asked Deny about that. Uh, you know, after the game, Dennis Sutton, and I said, you know, nobody's really putting up these big numbers, and he's like, yeah, but. Yeah, we know that when NFL scouts look at stuff, they, they see the way the games are going. And you could put enough on tape that these guys are going to have an understanding. You know, I think for a lot of people, like, you know, if if you're a fan or if you vote on all Big Ten teams and, and you don't have a chance to see tape of everybody, you know, you're saying who's – I mean, if you were to say now who the best linebacker in the Big Ten is, like Penn State, everybody would look at the ben, Big Ten tackle leaders and, like, nobody would – you know, nobody from Penn State would even be in the in the mix. And we know that's not the case. We know they have really, really good players. But I think it says something to the fact that these guys are all buying into that. They get it. They're not being selfish about their own stats. And there there is definitely something to say. And you know what? That's on both sides of the ball, too. Because you talk to Nick Singleton after the game, and he's kind of the same way. Hey, listen, I'm concerned about winning. And I, I don't get the sense that it's just lip service. But, again, you look at those numbers, and it is just absolutely crazy how few tackles their leaders have. But then you go down, and it's like 26 guys or something have you know two or more. So it's the, the wealth has been spread. And it, I, I think it's just going to keep happening. And you know what? Even if they get into a game where, where they're on the field a ton – 
I think they've established enough depth now that they're going to be okay with that. I don't, I don't foresee that happening, but we don't always foresee everything. And sometimes things, you know, get twisted a little bit, but even if that did happen, I think they have the the depth now. And then I think with that bye week coming, you know, it's, it, it's, it's in a well, relatively well slotted place for them. For the final word on this defensive performance, I'll just quickly review Penn's uh, Iowa's drive chart on the night. Uh, <laughs> six yards, six plays, 24 yards and a punt. Uh, three plays, 30 yards and a fumble. That monster three-play, 30-yard drive proved to be Iowa's longest possession on the evening. Uh, three plays, seven yards, punt. Three plays, three yards, punt. Three plays, zero yards, punt. Three plays, negative six yards, punt. Three plays, negative three yards, punt. One play, negative six, fumble. Three plays, seven yards, five yards, or five plays, 20 yards, fumble. Uh, wow. That was it. That, that was great uh, games against Penn State. The MVP is who for Iowa? Oh, Tory Taylor, their punter. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's saying. no doubt I mean, about that. And that guy's I don't know legit. what they're going to look like if they don't replace him with another All American. Imagine this Iowa team with a bad punting situation or an average punting situation. That could have really gotten ugly. Uh, and, and man, I don't know. It, the crazy thing is, and we weren't kidding when we told David Eichholt, maybe we'll see an Indy. Because the West is a mess, and it might be one of the worst divisions overall in college football. It just happens to be adjacent to arguably the best division in college football, and we'll put an end to all that next year when the Big Ten transforms. Going over to the offense, uh, Daniel, clean football has been the story thus far. Uh, it's been hammered home uh, the last 48 hours, I'd imagine, but no turnovers. The only team in the FBS left standing that hasn't turned the ball over thus far. And When you've got a defense collecting takeaways, they are – Pretty ridiculous combination that Penn State's playing with right now. The one thing missing, though, is is those field stretching, explosive plays, and we know they care much uh, as much about explosive plays at Penn State to actually paint explosive plays, the words on walls, on facilities, and that's how important it is to them. We haven't seen that yet, but they've been content to take what they can get and protect the football, which they say the football is the program. Yeah, you know, right now, after four games, Penn State is number one nationally in turnover margin. They're at plus 11, uh, which I think really speaks to how complimentary uh, the football has been. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that we're all really waiting for Penn State to to break out. Um, you know, Nick Singleton had his longest run of the year. It was only 19 yards, but it was one of those plays where he made a couple guys miss, was weaving in and out a little bit, and you saw maybe some of the more vintage singleton that we saw last year when he was really, really a game breaker. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working through the the rewatch right now for the, the rewind piece. And it felt a little bit at times like that, you know, maybe things were a little too horizontal, which against a, a defense like Iowa's uh, is going to make things a, a little bit difficult just because of how solid they are. Um, but, you know, I feel like overall, I mean, the fact that, Drew Aller just continues to take what defenses give him that you don't really sense any impatience from him. Um, it really does go back to the the poise and the calm that uh, James Franklin talked about. I mean, that has been talking about. I think normally when you think about that, um, a lot of people's minds go immediately to like what we saw in Iowa City two years ago in terms of a quarterback not being poised, not being collected. But I think that we're starting to see that you know that description really stretches into when the plays are happening as well. You know, not just what happens in between, not just being in the environment, but actually being in the play. You know, there's rarely feels like there's any panic. Um, you know, he's not getting sacked. It seems like he's getting rid of the ball if nothing's there, throwing it away. 
Uh, if he's missing, he's missing in a way where no one can catch it. Uh, his receivers are helping him a little bit. <laughs> you know, Kondre Lambert-Smith broke up that pass in week one. We saw Theo Johnson snare that high fastball uh, on Saturday night. Um, but I think it's just really, it's just been really, really solid. You know, I, you know, like the defense, I think, you know, we saw Manny Diaz break out, uh, you know, that package with the defensive ends. We did see Mike Yersich try to dip into the playbook a little bit with that Keandre Lambert Smith, uh, you know, wide receiver pass that Penn State, I think, really got lucky on <laughs> um, and that they really got bailed out a little bit because that was just such a, you know, potentially disastrous play. Um, but I think as time goes on, you know, I, I think that we'll start to see a little bit more. Um, I think that Drew Aller knows there's more that he can do, more that the offense can do. But it's similar to the defensive side of the ball where, you know, guys know that, you know, they might not get these huge stats, but they know that what they're putting on tape and what that's leading to. Um, obviously, it's a little different on offense, but I think that there's a similar mindset where, you know, guys know they're, they're doing their jobs. They know they're playing their parts and they know what that's going to lead to. A big night for the tight ends, as we addressed on the postgame podcast. You had Theo Johnson with his breakout performance of the week and really build on some good things at, at Illinois. Six catches, 42 yards. Uh, Tyler Warren finds the end zone a couple times. He has four touchdowns in the last few games. Uh, Khalil Dinkins gets his second career touchdown. Big time play. Tremendous. Everyone's you know, It's gone viral a bit on social media with some of those NFL scouting folks. That, that touchdown throw that Drew Aller threw. That's a kill little Dinkins, but don't short shortchange that catch for a guy who has been tested a lot in big moments like that in a whiteout situation. So great night for the tight ends. A, a strange night again for, for the wide receiver group. I think it's been kind of a game-by-game case study. It's been hard to say. We have a four-game consistent sample size of exactly what this wide receiver room is. I think we do know that Liam Clifford is going to play a lot in the slot. Sometimes he's going to be start. Sometimes what was the time is going to be two tight ends carrying the brunt of work. I think you had Theo Johnson at 70 plus snaps more than any other skill position player. And Tyler Warren was pretty much at the same amount of snaps as Keandre Labert Smith, low sixties. And then you got about 20 down uh, in terms of snap counts to work your way to the next wide receiver. So Tyler Warren's seen a lot more time than any wide receiver, not named Keandre Labert Smith, but Malik McLean went from playing a bunch and being a starter to playing as little as any outside receiver. Uh, against Iowa. And then you had Dante Cephas make his first start, get significant run. You had Harrison Wallace play, uh, get somewhat limited run. And Omari Evans actually played upon further review quite a bit more than I thought he did. He was about there about as much as Dante Cephas helping carry that load. We did see Keandre Lambert Smith working in the slot as well. Liam Clifford had a couple grabs, but Mark, it continues to be a bit of a steep drop a drop off in terms of production. You've got Lambert Smith as the clear number one target, 11 of those, uh, eight catches, 66 yards. He finds the end zone, really nifty touchdown catch by him. I thought that was really impressive, especially in the rain. Uh, but beyond him, it, Clifford had two catches for 17 yards, and no one else had multiple receptions out of the receiver room. And I just don't know who's going to start uh, next game against Northwestern, who's going to play a bunch. And uh, Malik Mega, once again, by the way, special teams captain, someone who was jockeying for a two deep position coming out of preseason camp, a third consecutive game that he was out on that pregame report. We did see him with the team, uh, but he has not been part of this equation. Yeah. One thing I would say is that there's so much focus on, on not going downfield and how the receivers aren't being used or whatever. But to me, the, the thing that jumped out to me about that game on further review was the freedom that Yursich was giving Drew Aller in in uh, fourth and third and short situations. 
you know, that's a lot of confidence. You know, people are forgetting that 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 was a fourth and one pass to Dinkins for a touchdown. It was third and two from the Iowa two when he hit Warren in the back of the end zone. Third and seven on the Iowa seven when he hit Warren. And it was first and three on the Iowa three when he hit Keandre. So what is that telling you? Okay, maybe they're not taking the deep shots yet. But when they're getting into when they're staying on schedule, and I asked Drew about this after the game, you know, can you speak to the importance? He goes, Yeah, when you stay on schedule, that opens up your entire playbook. And I just wonder how much more we're going to see from that when they're actually in tight games. And if that's when the receivers get more involved in the passing game. I know I went a long way to get there. And I also think that the Harrison Wallace. I, I think I know I probably underestimated how much not having him out there consistently uh, is because, you know, early in the season, I think he was kind of a, a another one of those go to type guys. But obviously, you know what you get from Keandre Lambert Smith. He, he's got to stop with the with the personal foul penalties. This one wasn't as bad, uh, obviously, as the one at Illinois. But. You know, Cephas gets in there and he showed a little bit of burst. I liked what I saw from him, but nobody's doing it consistently. Caden Saunders is a guy who I think we're all high on, but he's got to get his punt return house in order now after we all, you know, lavished all the praise on him. So I just think it's going to be a matter of when we see the entire offense functioning the way it's ultimately going to function, but it hasn't had to do that just yet. And it's, I, I see these little signs of the confidence that Yersich has in Aller, like in those fourth and short situations or third and sh short situations, and rather just had, handing it off to your running back, giving him the confidence to throw it. And I think as he keeps developing that confidence, maybe he's not leaning on Tyler Warren, who's clearly one of his go-to guys now. Maybe he's just not leaning on Keandre Lambert-Smith. Maybe he starts looking a little bit more. And I think that's part of the development of a young quarterback. So I think it goes hand in hand. I don't think it's just the wide receivers on their own. I think those things go hand in hand. Again, it's a, it's a little hard to complain about an offense that's protecting the football so well, uh, winning these games handedly, putting their second teamers in in the fourth quarter. But it, no it, there's one thing beyond the deep shots that I think people are want to see and are curious about now that we're one-third the way through this regular season is – when does the ground game really start to, to show that it can take over a game and not look back? And it uh, didn't happen against Iowa. I think that's a tough setting for it to happen. I know, Mark, that was part of your bold prediction. And yeah. that's the reason why I think it was a right to be a bold prediction categorized that way. Um, they finished with over 200 rushing yards at 215. But I want to point out that Bo Perbula uh, in backup work got 55 of those yards on, on the ground. So now they count, but but it, you know inflated the overall total just a bit in terms of what we're looking at from a running back room. Catron Allen goes 21 carries, 72 yards. Uh, they've been working him quite a bit. I think he was right around 20 carries, 19 of them against Delaware. So significant usage that night. Uh, and, and Singleton right up around 17. To see these guys combining for 36 carries, that's kind of in the wheelhouse of where they were last year. Uh, and, and, and so it, we, we didn't see kind of that boom, though. Uh, you got 72 yards from Allen, uh, 49 of them from Nick Singleton. The Singleton was actually just a shade under three yards per carry. Allen was right around three and a half yards per pop. Daniel, this is maybe another aspect of how does the ceiling raise for Penn State? They look great. They're blowing everybody out. They're 4-0. We just touched on how the defense could take another step because of the fresh legs and the new packages that, that many Diaz could roll out. If this ground game can really start to find its footing, I don't think you can say that that it's you know it's lost its way. But to this point, 
it hasn't been that, you know, punch you in the mouth repeatedly over the course of the game and you can ride it to victory, at least based on the way they've dictated their play calling and what we've seen in terms of production. Yeah, I think the running game has been solid this year. I, I do think it is missing those, you know, you know, boom plays, those explosive plays, the spectacular runs that we saw from Nick Singleton last year. But you know, I, I think that Iowa is a really tough team to run on. Uh, you know, defensively up the middle, they're very, very stout. You know, that linebacker, Jay Higgins, I thought had a really nice night. Um, and you know that the way that Iowa approaches things, that they wanted to take that away from Penn State. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's something that I'm concerned about. You know, like I said earlier, I thought things, I, it felt a little horizontal at times. Guys trying to get to the edge and they couldn't quite get there. Um, but I, I do think that we're going to see one of these guys break one at some point. Talked about Singleton's run a little bit earlier. Um, and I think it also bodes well for Penn State that they're still going to the running game, even if it's not putting up the same numbers and that it's it's still allowing them to dictate the terms of the game. I mean, we saw that at Illinois last week um, where the running game did a very, very nice job uh, from that perspective. Um, and I think that Penn State you know, was able to do that uh, again against Iowa. I mean, the, the one field goal drive was like, 15 plays or 17 plays, 57 yards. Um, you know, there's some help with penalties on that one. Uh, but I think that Penn State has is really showing that they can grind opponents down. You know, I think that, you know, would it be nice if Nick Singleton was averaging more than six yards per carry again? You know, would it be nice if Katron Allen was averaging more than five yards per carry again? Yeah. But I think that that's going to come a little bit with time. I think they're going to have the opportunity to put up some numbers uh, in some upcoming games. But I think where the running game is right now, um, I think they need to find some explosive plays. But at the same time, this isn't a situation like 2021 where you feel like yeah. the offense is, is grinding to a halt. Like they're still moving. You know, they're still adding things. And I think that both of those running backs at this point, you know, they've really banked their reputation. So when they're out there, opposing defenses have to account for them and they're going to be paying attention. Yeah, at the very least, this this rushing attack has put you in a manageable third down and manageable fourth down situations that they've taken advantage of. They've done nice work in those spots. Um, and I and I think, you know, you make a great point. It's not like because the rushing attack isn't wowing that it's costing you possessions. They went six possessions, 10 plus plays. Big part of that is because you're dedicated to running the ball and you're, and you're not turning away from it. Uh, but but it just feels like that's an aspect of this team where you want to get to that college football playoff. You want to go, you know, race past Ohio State and Michigan this season. Uh, you're going to need to get those kind of moments. And and Mark, I kind of wonder as we have the conversation, does one of these things need to unlock the other? I mean, we're talking about stretching the field uh, with with the pass while everyone's you know pr you know putting uh you know preparing for you and and putting a bunch of guys in the box. Um, but then you also got to rumble some long runs against those stacked defenses to, to create some accountability. One of those things maybe has to unlock the other, and, and through four games it hasn't been a problem, uh, but I, I don't know. Maybe it's a chicken and egg, egg kind of concept. This is Mike Yersich's job to figure out, and, and but I, I, I guess they're, they're certainly attached at the very least, these two aspects that we're discussing. Well, there's been no reason to put certain things on tape, right? And and, and clearly, I mean, if if – I'm not sure what the numbers were against Illinois, but I think it was only one. But I think they've only thrown two passes that have traveled f farther than 20 yards downfield all season. And that's just uh, – I mean, that's telling you that he's keeping something in his back pocket. And I think that's the thing that when they need it is going to open it up. But he hasn't had to show it. And and 
I get it. I mean, you know, I think we're we're sitting up there in the press box wondering, you know, when are they going to start airing it out? And, you know, at the end of the game, it's 31 nothing, and they never they didn't really have to. But I think that's where when they're able to do that, that's where where teams are going to have to stop stacking the box maybe the way they are and play more honestly. And that's where the running backs are going to be able to break some things. I will say this, that I agree with Daniel that, especially with Catron Allen, I thought early in the game they tried to do some things wide that didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. I mean, Mike Yersich is smarter than I'll ever be, but he just doesn't seem to be that kind of speed guy. And I also, also say that Singleton, I mean, there's probably six or seven plays at least this year where he seemed to be like that close you know, to popping it. And, and it, he just hasn't been able to, to, to get that going. So uh, again, maybe, maybe it's a little of both. Maybe it's, you know, you need to get some of those long plays, but maybe it's also, you know, Singleton just, you know, getting past that one defender that he was able to do last year, because we know he's every bit as fast, if not faster. Uh, so we'll, we'll see when that actually happens. I, you know, I don't want to, project my bold prediction for this week but i'm thinking there could be some some rushing big big uh gains going on this week but we'll have to wait and see i'll uh, i'll have to take a closer look at that northwestern team coming off its big win uh before i decide if that's going to be my bold prediction again maybe i'll just recycle it keep doing it until it happens yeah well hey lastly we talked about the demons they were able to exercise last saturday these these running backs have some things to work out after their first interaction with northwestern last year in the rain and beaver stadium Put the ball on the turf a lot. It was oh, like yeah. a, a five turnover <laughs> performance overall for the right. offense, and they had the brunt of that because because of their fumble issues. It didn't prove to be a problem the rest of the season, but that day, Mother Nature and Northwestern's defense were a rough combo. Just wanted to really quickly before we before we finish off with some comments on special teams and get to Tyler Calvaruso on, on a bunch of recruiting notes. Um, Olu Fashinu, JB Nelson, Hunter Norzad. Caden Wallace all went 80 plus snaps in this game. Then you had Venga Ioane playing a bunch. Sal Wormley, your starting right guard, obviously playing a bunch. Um, but this was as tightened up as we've seen the offensive line. You've had guys get in late. This was as as uh, probably unactive as we've seen Drew Shelton in, in with the normal game flow at any point this season. He came in late. So did Javen Williams. So did Anthony Donko. So did Nick Dawkins. But I thought it was interesting, uh, Daniel, in this case, to see that they really went with their lead guys. And I think we're starting to see just where Caden Wallace is. I mean, you can point to the fact that this team has allowed one sack and there haven't been a bunch of close calls for Drew Aller consistently and just say, well, that tells a story a little bit about how Caden Wallace is you know, handling himself. We haven't talked about it much on this podcast. That's probably a good sign. Um, and, and now we're through this much of the season and they're distributing their snap count like that at right tackle and like that to J.B. Nelson, I think we're starting to see exactly how this offensive staff feels about their line. Maybe that can change in the next few weeks. But this, as much as anything, I think they need to have their plan set, whether it's six guys, seven guys, when they're playing, by the time you get to that Columbus trip in mid-October. Yeah, it was, it was about this time last year when they – I think at left guard, they really kind of committed to, to Landon Tangwall. It was that that Northwestern game, uh, number five, when, when he played every snap um, after rotating earlier in the year. Obviously, Hunter Norzad was, was banged up, so there, there was that to factor in. But, you know, I think that you get through a month um, of you get a month of tape, you get a month of reps, uh, you, you see what you have. Um, and I think from here you can decide, you know, what you need to do. Um, I think that this says more about, Caden Wallace than it does about, you know, Drew Shelton or, or anyone else. But, 
you know, Tyler, you talked to Caden Wallace out in out, out at the Rose Bowl, and you know he sounded very, very determined to come back. Um, you know, to put you know good things on tape to to be a contributor um, after some of his struggles last year. I think that you talk about him; he's one of those guys where it was kind of like, "All right, you can say it, but we're going to need to see it." And I think so far through these four games, we've seen it, um, and he's done a really, really nice job of solidifying that right side. Um, I think that also that rep distribution you know, shows what the staff thinks of Venga Ioane, um, and what he's been able to do in his development as just a redshirt freshman, you know, to put himself to here where he's rotating in. Um, you know, I, I think that he is someone that, that they really like and they really feel comfortable with. So, you know, they talk about in like the NBA and college basketball that, when you get into the postseason or conference play that you see the rotations really, really tighten up and that you're going to ride your guys um, that, you know, can contribute, that, you know, can get things done, you know, when it's, when it's time. Um, And I think that Penn state, you know, I think they kind of know where things are. I think that we were kind of like, all right, coming into the year, we figured that there was a top 10 that we could kind of, um, you know, look at and then, that's kind of slowly gotten down. Then it was, you know, we were down to top seven, top eight in terms of how the rotations were going. And now we're down to a a top six and we know who the top six linemen are. We know who's going to play. And I think that that is kind of, you know, speaks to the evaluation that Penn state has done through these first couple of weeks of the season. And I think that this is, you know, you look at these next two games against Northwestern and UMass. I think that maybe we'll see some more rotations. Maybe we'll see, um, you know, some more different combinations, but I think, you know, a month from now, when you get into that back half of the season, more big 10 play, the, your biggest games, I think that this is more of what it's going to look like. Yeah. You, you could see Olu and, and, and some of these Hunter Norzad maybe scale back those reps in those next couple of weeks and pair that up with a bye week. And, and much like your defense, all of a sudden you're in a very enviable position with the healthier offensive line and the legs that those guys are bringing in. Uh, to to the final stretch in the second half of your conference matchups. Uh, I wanted to finish here. Um, by the way, I wanted to actually, actually point out another guy. I know I did it in the post game, but I thought Venga Ioane, when he gets into the open field and is asked to pull, just gets an opportunity to get to the second level. I mean, he matches every description that we have heard about him from the practice field in the spring, uh, going out of his freshman year even. It felt like they would have burned his redshirt last year. If he was in a Drew Shelton situation, they would have had – no problem putting him out there and burning that red shirt. They didn't have to. They kept him the four games. But now uh, you're getting to look at it. I think I think there were maybe some issues he was working through early in the season, getting his uh, feet wet as a guy who's going to play a bunch, and, and you saw maybe some hesitancy. Not really seeing that now. I think he's going from point A to point B with not a lot running through his mind at 350 pounds, the heaviest guy on this roster. He moves far from that. I think him and Tyler Warren are two guys that when they've gotten the open field blocks and as, as run blockers out there, they continue to really impress this season. Tyler Warren at tight end, uh, Venga Ioane, and, and J.B. Nelson as well at the guard spot. And when you start listing off those kind of guys, that's a good thing. You want, you want as many of those names as you can. And Olu Fashion, who looked the part, uh, I mentioned that on the podcast, he looked like an All-American against Iowa protecting Drew Aller in that matchup, and it made all the difference. So, uh, Mark, I'm going to let you take the baton for special teams because you pointed it out in late August, and we sat down and said, what's the biggest concern about this team? What could What could ultimately derail them? When you're winning games by as much as they are, you don't spend a lot of time focused on a point here, or three points here, or some lost yardage on a punt. But there's going to be tighter affairs ahead where those could tip the scales away from Penn State and cost you a spot in Indianapolis come December. Punter, 
place kicker and, and and I think to an extent special teams generally I think Caden Saunders uh enters a little bit of shaky ground he's got a rebound to make uh but I think really place kicker and punter those are spots where you've just got to get some answers or you've got to get more competition and generally just want that consistency yeah I think the issue is it's something different kind of popping up every game but it's something that's popping up every game and, and again you can't have it you can have it now but if you get into a close game I've said it over and over it's going to cost you a game at some point you know with uh, with with Falcons uh, listen, I, I, I get that it was rainy, uh, but you know, you're looking at a situation where I don't have the, the season numbers up, but you know, yeah, I do have them up. I mean, so from 30 to and beyond from 30 yards and beyond they're you know, two of four, I mean, that's 50%. I mean, that's, that just doesn't cut it. I mean, and I, I know that I, I initially had that he missed one when the game was close and I was wrong on that. I screwed it up. I apologize. Uh, but I, you're just looking for that consistency. And I guess with Riley Thompson, when you have it in a situation where he's going against Tory Taylor, it's probably not going to look good. But, you know, you see a game where, that, you know, his average is 37.8 yards with nothing down in time in, in, inside the, the 20. I mean, these are the little hidden things that could come back and get you. The thing that surprised me most was, was Caden Saunders. And I guess it shouldn't have surprised me because it's probably my fault or our <laughs> fault because we were lavishing praise on him uh, last week. But you know what this punter is about. We saw it, right? Didn't we at Iowa two years ago? You know, the rugby-style punts that roll and roll and roll until they stop. So you you have to field them. You know, you just can't let them go. And then when you do field them, you can't drop them. And, and I hope for Caden's sake that that was a one-off for him. You know, I think he I think he's earned the benefit of the doubt, even though it's a relatively small sample size, because until that point, he had been really, really good. And maybe this was that Northwestern game for the running backs last year where, where it was bad conditions and they were just fumbling like crazy. But, you know, again, that's the kind of thing. Give them credit for hustling and recovering the the, the, the muffed uh, punt return. But that's going to cost you a game somewhere along the line. So we'll see. I mean, uh, everything we saw up until that point, up until this game, he was making the right decisions. He was doing the right thing. He was calm. He wasn't flustered. And I just think he got a little flustered against this punter, maybe knowing this guy's reputation and maybe knowing how good this guy was in the previous game and basically won the game for them, you know, out at Iowa a couple of years ago. So learning, learning experiences in these games, uh, that's all fine and dandy. But by the time they get to Columbus – you know, they've been able to make it this far. And I'll be anxious to see what James Franklin has to say about it this week. And not just not one particular thing or the other, but like I said, the fact that issues are coming up every single game. You know, how comfortable is he with where the special teams units are? And I'll bet you he's not very comfortable. All right, guys. Well, we'll get into it a, a lot more later in the week. We'll look ahead to this Northwestern matchup. The Wildcats at 2-2 two and two had a big fourth-quarter rally against Minnesota last week. They actually had more wins this season already in September than they had all of last year uh, at 1-11 and 11 on the season. So we'll dig into them a little bit. You'll hear from an opposing uh, reporter on this podcast as the week goes on. We'll have James Franklin and a few players available uh, for, for some questions and answers on Tuesday, and we'll get back to you with episode number two. Uh, Mark, Daniel, it's time to turn our attention to a couple big commitments for Penn State. 
State recruiting, but I appreciate all the perspective on game number four. Hey, Thanks, one, quick one quick last yeah. point, Tyler. Um, I know we're in the grind of the season, but I wanted to thank all the people who take a second to say, hey, I listen to the podcast. You guys do a really good job. Tyler manages all this, but uh, you would be surprised whether I'm at the grocery store or in the parking lot of the game or, or wherever, the number of people who come up and say that they appreciate the podcast and they enjoy listening to it. So I want them to know that we appreciate you and never hesitate to come up and say a couple words to me. These two guys are prima donnas. They'll probably, you know, brush you off. But if you ever want to come up to me and say something, no, any, seriously, to any of us, come up and say hello. We're happy to talk. And we appreciate everybody who watches and listens, listens to the podcast. Uh, it means a lot to us. It means a lot to the site. So just wanted to get that in because I know sometimes in the grind of the season, we forget to thank the people who matter most. Yeah, totally agree. I think you got to go through Cameo to get Daniel to really do much these <laughs> days. But uh, we'll talk to both of you guys soon. Later. Thanks, Tyler. We'll be right back on the Lions 24-7 podcast. All right, let's jump into it. Tyler Calvaruso, you know, it's a busy time of the year. We can spend this much time on a podcast breaking down a top 25 matchup and yet to get to a couple big time pickups for Penn State recruiting. Let's do that right now with Tyler Calvaruso, who has been working the phones hard all through Whiteout Week and beyond Whiteout Week. And we were wondering where the commitments might come from. Uh, let's start with the most recent, though, Tyler, because it just happened here on a Monday afternoon. Um, it's an in-state one, and it's one that you spent a lot of time previewing on our Thursday podcast because your crystal ball was in. Yeah, Takoya Hayes pulled the trigger on his decision to commit to Penn State coming out of the weekend where he made it to campus for the whiteout. It was another really good visit for him. And this one just came together for the Indian Lions pretty much in short order. You know, we talked about going back to March when Penn State landed Keandre Barker as its first 2025 running back commit. Where would Penn State go when it came to pairing another back with Barker? You know, there was a lot of the original thought process was, you know, they're going to shoot for the stars. And once they got eyes on Hayes' junior season film, I mean, it was undeniable that he could be a big-time player at the next level, and the Penn State staff liked what it saw on that front. The relationship with Hayes was already in a really, really good place. I mean, he's Terry Smith's godson, so that kind of speaks for itself. And just two sides that really have a high opinion of each other, and it worked out for the Nittany Lions. They got themselves a second back in the class and a high-quality back at that. You know, like I said last week, there are a lot of people I've talked to who think – Hayes could be that next really, really high-end in-state running back to take his talents to Penn State and has a real chance to produce at a high clip at the next level. So there's a lot of excitement about this commitment. Yeah, he's had a very productive season, as you documented on our last episode of the podcast at Aliquippa. Uh, the other listed finalists in this recruitment uh, were Pittsburgh, Ohio State, Michigan, West Virginia, Cincinnati, Maryland, and Michigan State. And you had mentioned, well, uh, for a guy with, with a really solid offer list who had production last year, I think he was right around 2,000 uh, yards on the ground, 30-plus touchdowns, kind of under the radar. He's got that three-star rating. And what did I say? One thing you want to drag this kid into the radar, drag him in the spotlight, is give him that Penn State commit label and have him wear that at a at a Pennsylvania high school here for the rest of his junior season. A lot of eyes are going to be on him. So if he produces now moving forward, uh, there's going to be opportunities for maybe some movement in the rankings. But I think just his profile will be elevated because, as you said, they've got the biggest name in the 2026 class at the running back position. Messiah Mickens already committed. Now they've got a 2025 piece. He's part of a combo at that spot. So where are we with running back recruiting in 2025? Uh, Barker, Keandre Barker has been committed for some time out of the state of Texas. Uh, he was at Arkansas playing high school football last year as a sophomore, but he has since moved. Um, 
are they done? Do they always explore? I feel like Penn State, you've always got to keep uh, your lines of communication open at a position like running back the way you produce star talent there. Yeah, I think it's kind of TBD right now, given how early it is in the cycle. You know, you kind of have to assume that they're going to continue to, at the very least, keep some guys warm. I mean, you had Marquise Davis, who's a top 24-7 back from Cleveland, who was on campus for the whiteout. He had a really good visit and called Penn State one of his top choices coming out of that visit. Isaiah West from St. Joseph's Prep in Philly. I mean, he's a big-time back who has power five traits. He was also on campus for the whiteout and he expressed that he enjoyed the trip and also has Penn state up there on his list. So look, I mean, like I said, it's early in the cycle. So you kind of have to see where things go. They're in a good spot right now, already having two backs on board, you know, whether or not they add a third, it's iffy. Yeah. But I think they're going to, you know, maintain contact with some guys they really, really like see where things go. And cause you know, I mean, you just have to see how things play out throughout the course of the cycle. Barker has been committed for a while now and he hasn't been back to campus for a little bit, but everything's going well there. You know, he hasn't really expressed a whole lot of interest in any new offers that have come in. So there's a lot of good feeling about him sticking. I mean, just based on his feedback on what he's had to say about Penn State and his relationships with the staff as well. So it seems like right now the Nittany Lions have two backs who are going to be pretty solid throughout the cycle. But again, you just never know. So you want to keep lines of communication open with some guys who are high on the board. And, you know, just if it comes up later in the cycle, it comes up again later in the cycle with guys like Davis and West. But right now, I think Penn State is happy, definitely happy with the two backs it has on board. And I think this, I think most people, most of our listeners are aware of this. And Jaywan Sutter, you trust with the decisions like yeah, this, who he's taking, who he's offering, who he's prioritizing. Uh, the man knows what he's doing. And, and it's worth noting this as well. Uh, he has, so he inherited his first recruiting class with Penn State. He came to campus and they had already signed the 20, uh, 2018 class. Ricky Slade uh, was a composite five star, didn't work out for him, but uh, he was there at Penn State. Uh, but ever since then, when they have brought in freshman running back, Tyler, it has been two, two at a time. One year they took a they they went paused uh, high school running back recruiting in terms of signing somebody and they brought in Jonathan Lovett uh, one and done transfer by way of Baylor but aside from that it's been tandem pickups and, and Katron Allen uh, and Nick Singleton have obviously been the, the stars there but there's been years where Devin Ford and Noah Kane were the hot new freshmen on campus and Kazai Holmes and Kevon Lee had to play a bunch of football and right now they're in a spot where they actually have the luxury because of who they have in front of that depth chart and what Trey Potts has brought to campus where. London Montgomery and Cam Wallace are a scout team mode. I think both of these guys are ready to be involved in game action, but there's a, a spot brewing here, Tyler, where we go into next year. And not only are you bringing in another tandem in 2024 with Quentin Martin, who we all love and could end up as a five-star here in the state of Pennsylvania. And then you've got a four-star out of the state of Wisconsin as well in Corey Smith. So those guys come to campus as true freshmen. You could have two red shirt freshmen who the program is very high on. And Oh, by the way, juniors nick singleton and trey potts and uh or, i'm sorry juniors nick singleton and katron allen so uh, look it's hard to keep running back rooms together the transfer portal does its thing and i think that's why it's important to add two at a time and they get a really good one here out of aliquippa um any other thoughts on this i mean it's the kid who made the trip to the whiteout he made the trip up to the opener against west virginia he seems like he's somebody who with you know in striking distance to campus can be one of those important pieces for the class moving forward. You know, someone who's going to be able to be an extension for you on the recruiting trail a bit. 
I think that's definitely a possibility, especially given the fact that he's an in-state kid who's getting in early. You've seen a bunch of those kinds of guys become leaders in the class in recent cycles. I mean, look at Cooper Cousins in 2024, who has been committed to Penn State for what feels like forever at this point. He's an in-state guy who is all about the Nittany Lions, and he has played a huge part in that class coming together. I mean, Hayes is Penn State's first in-state 2025 commit. You know, you have Barker from Texas, and you have Amari Gaines from Jersey. Hayes is the first Pennsylvania guy in a pretty talented 2025 class to get in and commit. So I think that positions him to be a leader. And then when it comes to the overall running back recruiting, what J1 Sider has been able to accomplish, it, it's all about stacking talent, right? You know, you want to have that high quality depth where if you get hit with a rash of injury at the position, you could plug in guys who are ready to produce at that moment. Are you going to lose some guys? Yeah, I mean, that's just the way it is these days with the transfer portal. And guys want to see the field. And, you know, some guys get buried. Some guys rise to the top. That's just the way it plays out. But Penn State is going to continue stacking running back talent and talent at other positions as well on the recruiting trail. And, you know, you, you create a high-quality room with high-quality depth. That leads to where the program is, where it is at this point, you know, sitting on the verge of being a top-five team this season. That kind of depth is a big reason why. And when you look at the 2025 class, that's one that could use an infusion of, of you know, some, some guys who are ready to get out there, help you do some things, help build some things. It feels like there's others on the verge, and we're going to talk about one of them. Uh, you like a couple of the in-state linemen that, that I think have really good personalities, and and, and, and uh, Joshua Williams and, and Michael Carroll, and, and you like how things are trending there. But to get someone here definitively on board uh, at the running back spot, in-state, good stuff. Uh, Barker it was the other running back, as I said, out of the Woodlands in Texas. You've got Omari Gaines in New Jersey uh, out of Newark. And then the other one out of New Jersey that we get to right now is the commitment coming out of, of the weekend. And, and DJ McClary, um, what, what do we make of the top 24 si seven linebacker who saw enough and decided I'm ready to make my decision early in his junior season? When Penn State offered McClary last November, he got the chance to talk with Manny Diaz. And Diaz had a very powerful message to him. And it was a pretty simple one at that. It's, we're going to recruit the hell out of you. And that wasn't just <laughs> lip service. That was something that Penn State followed through on. And I think that was something that impressed McClary early on. To hear such strong words from a coordinator and then to see that coordinator and the Penn State staff follow through on that and pursue him as a priority from the jump, I think that really helped solidify the Nittany Lions as a top shooter for McClary. And that March visit that we talked about last week when he got back for a spring practice and got the chance to be more around Diaz and Dan Connor and learned more about the scheme and what the inner workings of Penn State is like. I think at that point, the clock kind of started. You know, Penn State had distanced itself from the field, and he gets back for the season opener against West Virginia. He's back for the whiteout, and he felt now was the time to wrap things up. You know, why prolong something that he felt was ultimately inevitable? So Penn State did a really, really good job here. And this is one of, if not the top linebacker that Penn State had on its 2025 board. So to get the deal done this early, and I don't think this is going to be one of those early commitments Penn State has to worry about either. I, I think given McClary's makeup and, you know, the feedback we've gotten on him, I, I don't think this is going to be anything Penn State has to worry about long term. I think he's going to be pretty another one who's going to be pretty solid throughout the cycle. Again, it's a 2025 and there's still a long way to go and it's still early. But when you get feedback like that, it comes in for a reason because you don't always get that feedback. I mean, look at the Jalen Matthews recruitment. We knew that was one that was going to be a battle from the start and it wound up resulting 
in a decommitment. So when you get that intel that a guy profiles as one who's now that he's committed, he's probably going to be done and focus on helping be a leader and build the class. That's encouraging. That's something that Penn State has liked about McClary as well. You know, off the field, really high quality feedback on him. So this seems like an overall solid get for the Nittany Lions. In my opinion, um, McClary profiles at this point as the most impressive prospect in this class. It's it's, it's not a yeah. huge class, obviously, in the 2025 cycle for the Nittany Lions at this point. Uh, he's rated as such. He's at number 121 overall in our 24-7 sports rankings. That does lead uh, this entire commitment group. Keandre Barker, the aforementioned running back out of Texas, is also in the top 24-7 at number 225. But McClary uh, at 16 overall in the country at linebacker. and He's the number five player in New Jersey. And there was a time when I first started covering this team, uh, seven years ago or so, Tyler, where, where, you know, it felt like Penn State was consistently involved or signing, you know, three or four of the top 10 players out of the state of New Jersey. Things have changed. You've seen Michigan take advantage. You've seen Notre Dame take advantage of the state. Everyone recruits New Jersey. You're well aware of that. Uh, Rutgers doesn't have a grip on, on the in-state kids. They'd love to, but you see a lot of movement in the New Jersey landscape. It, it feels like now the pendulum may be swinging back for Penn State here. I know they've invested some things. They've done some things from a staff perspective in the last couple of years, and I think we're really starting to see tangible results. You've got a couple of commitments out of the state, but you've also got guys making the trips and reciprocating your interest at an elevated point, I think, compared to the last three or four year span. New Jersey was a place Penn State wanted to really jump back into, and going out and hiring Khalil Ahmad away from Syracuse, I think that was the best possible move that any Lions could have made to get back heavily involved in the Garden State. I mean, the work that Ahmad has put in with guys like McClary and just Gaines and Cam Smith, who I know is at St. Joe's Prep now, but he's a South Jersey native. I mean, Max Roy at St. Joe's Prep is a South Jersey native as well. There are a lot of New Jersey natives playing in Philly too. I, I think some people – I mean, they had Jalen Matthews that. committed too, right? One of the top yeah, offensive I mean, tackles yeah. in the country. He's not with he them was, now, but they had him on board. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, that's something that may not have come together if it weren't for certain moves made by the Penn State staff. So uh, just adding a guy like Lamont who has so much juice in the state – that was a big deal. And, you know, Penn State is just really going after the top talent in the Garden State right now. And, you know, granted, maybe some of the lack of recent signings in New Jersey has something to do with the fact that some of the last few recruiting classes weren't all that great or all that deep. You know, it's not the, the days of New Jersey having guys like Jabril Peppers. It hasn't really popped up recently. But I think you're starting to see with this 2025 class, there's more and more top end talent kind of starting to resurface. And I think that brings a program like Penn State back into the picture more, especially when you go out and you make a concerted effort to recruit the state and you indicate that to everyone by hiring a guy like Ahmad. I think you're going to see more and more of Penn State, New Jersey. And hey, look, if the talent's there, it's a place Penn State wants to be recruiting and wants to go out and get guys. And we know Terry Smith, that Philadelphia uh, area extends towards South Jersey. I think people who are from the area or, or understand the area get it that that Philly kind of does extend into South Jersey a bit. You got South Jersey guys coming into Philly schools, as Tyler yeah. said. And then Phil Troutwine, of course, that's home base for him. He's a former South Jersey high school football standout. McClary, by the way, Henry Snyder School uh, in Jersey City. And, and where does that leave the 2025 linebacker board? When you get one of your big fish uh, on board this early, it's a great thing. Uh, you know, a month into his junior season of high school. Uh, but I know that, that Manny Diaz and company have cast a wide net. And it's also a very selective staff when it comes to the linebacker position. 
Yeah, and you know they've uh, they put themselves in a position to be selective. I feel given some of the talent that they have brought in to the program recently. You know, this Penn State staff is not going to settle for anything less than what they feel is an elite prospect at the linebacker position. That is the standard DS has set in his short time on campus. And with that comes some high end recruits who are ranked highly in the top twenty four seven. I mentioned Cam Smith, who's at St. Joe's Prep now. He's up there. Anthony Soccer, the Penn State legacy, who we've talked about a bunch. He's high up on that board. TJ Alford from Florida, Veros Beach High. He's been looking to make it to campus. Hasn't come to fruition yet. I'm anticipating it will at some point this fall. He was originally slated to visit for the season opener. That fell through. There was talk of him making it up for the whiteout. Ultimately didn't happen, but he is indeed looking to make it to campus at some point. Another guy is looking to make it to campus, and we circle back to Jersey, is Kamar Archie from Hunt School in Princeton. He's got the Nittany Lions high on his list. Early on, I mean, Mantrez Walker from Buford has resurfaced a little bit, former Michigan State, or not Michigan State, Michigan commit. He's back on the board, and he's planning on visiting campus next month. Deshaun Burnett from Pittsburgh, Amani, he's a really, really good player, and he's a guy who has been to Penn State a bunch, so he's in that conversation. Brett Clatterball from Virginia, who was just on campus for the whiteout, he's in that conversation. Ezekiel Marcellin from Miami Central, he hasn't been to campus in a little while, and I haven't heard a whole lot of buzz about his recruitment in general recently. He was in town in May for that Elite 11 All-22 regional. Me and you actually got eyes on him, and we were pretty impressed with what we saw out of him in drill work and just how physical he was without pads even being on. That was something that stood out to us. So he has an offer from the Nittany Lions. He's on the board, and he's definitely not a non-factor given the fact that Penn State is active at Miami Central. You have T.A. Cunningham committed. You have Beckham Kurtz, who's a top 2025 quarterback target at Miami Central. So even though his name hasn't popped up in conversation a whole lot recently, I think he's still definitely in play. So there's a lot of high quality targets on the board for Penn State at this point in the cycle, and it is going to zone in on its top guys and really focus on bringing them. Because like I said, the standard Diaz set is pretty high. Excellent stuff for them at linebacker. Uh, more impressive stuff at running back. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same for Penn State on the yeah. recruiting trail. Uh, Tyler Calvaruso, good look at the 2025 uh, class as it's starting to come together there. There's a, a couple other names we'll get to that maybe eventually join that group sooner rather than later. And let's start with one of your crystal ball picks from last week. He was on campus again. I think it was his seventh visit uh, to Happy Valley here in 2023. Uh, Brady O'Hara, uh, the jumbo athlete out of Western PA. Uh, where does he stand now coming out of the whiteout? It's pretty obvious who Brady O'Hara's leader is at this point in his recruitment. I mean, this was his seventh visit to Penn State in the year. It was his first whiteout experience as an offered recruit, and it was something he won't be forgetting for a long time. He was really just blown away with everything that the day entailed. And, you know, he doesn't have any visits coming, any visits to other schools coming up in the near future. And he doesn't really have a concrete timeline for a commitment either. But I think this is a recruitment that has just continued to point in Penn State's direction. And quite frankly, it feels like it's just a matter of time. So we'll continue monitoring him, see where he pops, if he pops up for any other visits this fall. But I know Penn State feels really good about where it is at with the Pittsburgh native who, you know, projects kind of in multiple places at the next level. It's kind of one of those things where I feel you get him on campus and you kind of figure it out after the fact, because he could do some good things at tight end. You know, there's been talk about him playing on the offensive line at tackle that has come up in conversations with Penn state, you know, so that projection is obviously you know, something that the staff is looking at. So again, we're going to have to keep an eye on where exactly Penn state sees him at the next level. But the fact of the matter is, you know, if he wants to join the class, 
he's going to have a spot. They're not going to say no to a highly ranked in-state kid like that, who they happen to like a lot. And they don't just like the player. They like the person, too. The relationships with Brady O'Hara and the Penn State staff are really, really good. There's a lot of comfort between both sides at this point. Six foot six, 235 pound uh, North Catholic high school junior Brady O'Hara uh, labeled that athlete inside the top 24 seven um, one to track and then another one to track and, and another that we kind of preview going into the last weekend. Tyler Calvaruso, uh, Kanoa Winston, his uh, cousin, his older cousin, KJ Winston, a starting safety for this Penn State squad as they shut out the Iowa Hawkeyes. I'm sure he was impressed by that situation. He's a top 100 safety prospect himself in the 2025 cycle. Um, I can't imagine Penn State hurt themselves with Kanoa Winston on Saturday night. Definitely not. He was impressed with the defense, as you said. And But more than anything else, he was just impressed with the continued hospitality the Penn State staff continues to show him every single time he makes it to campus. It's a consistent message. It's a consistent kind of prioritization. It's, and it's a consistent kind of treatment. It's starting to feel more and more like home to him at this point. And it's not just because his cousin is lined up on the back end of Penn State secondary. This staff has pushed all the right buttons so far with the top 100 safety. And he's another guy who, you know, he doesn't have any more fall visits locked in right now. Obviously that is likely to change. You know, he's going to get out and check some other schools out at some point because he does have an impressive offer list and some pretty intriguing options outside of Penn State. But he's another kid who has been to Penn State a lot especially in the, you know, the immediate fear, immediate present rather he's been here twice in the last month. So that speaks to, you know, his level of interest. And I think this is a recruitment where the Nittany Lions are positioned pretty well early on. Well, uh, Kanoa Winston out of Gonzaga in Washington, D.C., number 93 overall in 2025 rankings at 24-7 sports. He is the number eight safety on that board. And Penn State just signed a couple uh, top 10 overall safeties in 24-7 sports 2023 rankings in Dakari Nelson and King Mack, who is burning his red shirt here as a freshman. Um, let's get into one more 2025 name, and then we'll finish with two 2024 targets who were in Happy Valley during the weekend. And uh, this was another case of Penn State going long distance. These tight ends, they'll get on planes to come see this Nittany Lions team. And, and they were treated, uh, this one in particular was treated to a good show on Saturday night. Six catches for Theo Johnson, which was his best performance of the year. He had two more touchdowns for Tyler Warren. And, and Khalil Dickens gets in the act with a score as well. Yeah, Ryan Gayer from Alpharetta Milton High, which is a big-time program down in Georgia. He really loved what he saw out of Penn State's tight end room. And he told Brian Dome heading into this visit that the Nittany Lions were high on his list. And I think he comes out of this visit with Penn State in the exact same place in his top group. And it has been a uh, – it's been an interesting recruitment. He's got 42 offers, and he's narrowing down from that at this point. And Penn State is one of those programs receiving a lot of consideration. He told me that he's been very appreciative of the effort Penn State has put in to recruit him. So in turn, he wanted to return the favor and make it to Penn State for the whiteout. And he was just really overall impressed with everything. I mean, you mentioned the tight end production. He saw that play out, and he sees himself – fitting in the scheme because, you know, he got to see early in the game as well when, you know, the passing attack wasn't necessarily functioning as it was later in the game. You know, Penn State was sticking to the ground a little bit more and tight ends were putting in some work in the trenches with some blocking. And that was something that stuck out because he feels he could be an effective blocker and pass catcher at the next level. He's not limited to just one aspect. So that was something that he really liked. He just likes the scheme overall, likes Ty Howe, likes David Rocco, good relationships there, likes James Franklin, his overall personality and vibe got the chance to catch up with him before kickoff. So all positive takeaways from the Georgia native coming out of this visit. 
Penn State's been on a nice run of, of at least getting on the itinerary for it feels like the, the biggest names on the tight end position, it feels like, on an annual basis. Guys from Georgia, guys from the West Coast, the Midwest. They may not end up committing to Penn State, but they they always seem to make sure that they get here, get a longer look at the Nittany Lions because of what they've been able to do at this position and then what those guys have been able to do at the next level of football when you look across the NFL rosters right now. Uh, two guys in the 2024 class, so the pressure's on a bit more for Penn State and for these prospects to start figuring out where things stand. Uh, we are less than three months away now from the early signing period, which will come just a bit before Christmas. Uh, let's start with Ernest Willer, uh, top 100 defensive line prospect who checked out things on Saturday. Yeah, and this was kind of a visit where both sides are feeling each other out. You know, Willer hasn't been in town for a while, which means the Penn State staff hasn't seen him in a while. And you got to keep in mind, you know, he wasn't active on the spring practice circuit. He didn't camp anywhere. He didn't take any official visits during the summer. He's kind of just starting to dive back into things now. So there was a lot of feeling out going on. And I think things went really well in that regard. Willer got the chance to catch up with Brian Doan and he just relayed that he was really impressed with everything the visit entailed. He's really stood out was the play of Penn State's defense. Obviously. I mean, everyone saw the dominance that they put together, but he was really impressed with the Penn State defensive line and the way they do things. So you know, he's going to be outlining official visits once he kind of goes through the fall and makes unofficials and gets out and checks out some of the schools he hasn't been to recently. I think Penn State is definitely in the running to receive one of those visits. And if the Nittany Lions decide that they ultimately do want to, you know, prepare to push and make that move and take things to the next level with Willer, they feel they're in a good spot. And based on the feedback from Willer himself, I mean, it's kind of hard to argue against that thought process. Uh, Willer, number 86 overall in the top 247, uh, 6'4", 250 pounds is his listed weight at 24-7 sports. Again, something that didn't camp a lot, so you're always trying to, to get a lot of verified stuff when it comes to, to a guy like that. And, and, and they that did get that, so that was a positive coming out of this visit. Yeah, good. Um, so we'll, we'll keep tabs on him. It sounds like he's not you know, going to be closing up the notebook anytime soon. He's just really starting to open the notebook and, yeah. and figure out his plan. The opposite with Jalen Harvey. I mean, he has collected plenty of notes, right? I mean, he, he's gotten a chance to see other campuses. He's, he's gotten on a plane, gone out to Southern California. Um, this is one where uh, you know, it felt like it might be done a while back. Felt like we'd be talking about him as a commit months ago. Maryland, Southern Cal, Penn State have been the teams at the forefront here for a bit now. Um, Jalen Harvey labeled as a three-star as of now with an 89 rating. So a high three-star in 24-7 sports assessment. But he has been one of the more high-profile defensive prospects discussed by the likes of Steve Wilfong, for instance, at the national level for a while now in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic region. Penn State, I mean, are they going to seal the deal? Uh, and, and do you have a better sense of that or any sense at all, which would be an improvement going into this game, coming out of the game? You know, he says he's done with visits now and a decision could be coming next month. And I think that, you know, we've heard that before. You know, it seemed like his recruitment was going to be done in June. That didn't happen. We thought his recruitment was going to be done in July. That didn't happen. And really just it's been a fluid one, right? I think it's coming down to Penn State and USC. And I still feel good about Nittany Lions' chances of sealing this deal. You know, there's really – it's tough to put your finger exactly – on what's going on there was still coming out of this visit, but I think it was another positive Penn state experience for Harvey. And I think that, like I said, I, I think the best way to put it is I've still got my crystal ball in the lines. And as of right now, I don't plan on changing it. I haven't received any feedback that has led me to push it away. 
from Penn State or over to USC. So I think that's really just where I'm at with it right now. We have a full story uh, about uh, the visit for Harvey and, and what his focus is now uh, up at lines247.com. Brian Doan caught up with him. So encourage our VIP subscribers to check that out. You've been well informed here leading up to the whiteout and coming out of the whiteout. I think there's been like 15 uh, post whiteout stories on the recruiting event itself, including just a, a complete look at the, the list of uh, targeted prospects who made it to the campus. It was really an impressive showing for Penn State off the field and being able to organize this and, and send so many any players home feeling positive about Penn State but when you get a 31 nothing victory you know and on center stage in the process that always helps as well uh Tyler uh, let's finish up here uh with, with uh, just kind of where your thoughts are what was accomplished during the whiteout um and and what maybe you haven't put up at the site yet here on a Monday after, uh, afternoon that maybe people can look ahead to well there's still a lot of recruit feedback coming in so we're gonna have a bunch of that rolling in on the site throughout the day. I, look, I mean, it's Penn State's biggest in-season recruiting event, and I think the staff did all it could to help it standing with a lot of its 2025-2026 targets. I think this was a weekend that was well executed by the Penn State staff. And you see the, the final visitors list that we have up online 24-7, and you see how many offered recruits made it to campus. It just speaks to the pull of the whiteout at this point. You know, it's not really just an event. For Penn State now, it's kind of like a brand in a sense, and that's something that really helps Penn State get high-end talent to this game, and they executed with a lot of the top guys who made it to campus. So really, I haven't heard anything negative coming out of this weekend. It's all been positive for the Nittany Lions, and that's where you want to be coming out of a weekend like this. And on a Saturday where Mother Nature didn't do you a lot of uh, favors and making sure that guys could get to campus and stay dry and, and still to have that kind of a showing, uh, good stuff. I used to say there would just be dozens of, of targeted prospects and dozens of, of offered prospects. And I think it's more appropriate to say on Saturday they neared 100 offer prospects. Yeah. I think that's a better way to describe what took place. Hey, Tyler Calvaruso, you've been killing it. I'll let you get back to what you're doing at the site. Uh, thanks for hopping on the podcast, dealing with some breaking news on the commitment front, looking back to the one that came on Sunday as the 2025 class grows and the 2024 class looks for its final pieces. Thanks, man. All right, later. Uh, good stuff from Mark Brennan, uh, Daniel Gallon before Tyler Calvaruso talking about that game number four that Penn State put away against Iowa. We'll start breaking down that Northwestern matchup a little bit more in episode number two this week and give you the latest what we're hearing from James Franklin and multiple Penn State players after some media availability on Tuesday. Episode three this week, as usual, come your way on Thursday afternoon. We'll give our final score predictions for the Northwestern matchup. And then we'll send Mark and Daniel on a plane back out to Illinois to check out uh, Evanston. And they'll give us the latest live from that stadium. And we'll get a chance to hear from Daniel and myself uh, in the post-game podcast Saturday. So another game week uh, ready to roll here at Lions 24-7. Encourage you all to check out our content at lions247.com. For now, stepping aside, I'm Tyler Donahue. Thanks as always for listening to the Lions 24-7 podcast.